Well, good evening, everyone. We are um, coming towards the end, I suppose, of our series in the Judges called The Good, the Bad and the Unlikely. Uh, David's title, one of our tasks this evening is to try and work out whether Samson was good or bad or unlikely or a mixture of all of those. We are going to be looking at uh, the Samson story. He's judge number 12. He gets four chapters in Judges. Uh, he gets more detail than anybody, even Gideon. But we're just dealing with the, the pre-Delilah Samson uh, tonight. Um, next week we've got a special guest artist coming to sing a song, but uh, that's for next week. It's the climax event next week. I'm not going to read the three chapters because that would take up about half of my time. Uh, but I do challenge you that after this evening uh, you would find Samson in Judges and read the three chapters and maybe even chapter 16 as well, um, having heard what's being said uh, this evening. So before you look up anything in Judges, I wonder, can you think to yourself, what are the exploits of Samson? Uh, that's the pre-Delilah Samson. What exploits did he get up to? What things did he do that displayed his strength and so on? I wonder what they are. Well, those are four of them. Um, but the, the one on the bottom left, I'm going to leave that one because that's for David next week. All right, that's the, the carrying away of the, of the gates. So what's your image of Samson? What do you have in mind when you think of him? Maybe like me, you think of illustrations in a, in a children's Bible storybook, like some of the ones on the screen there. Um, maybe if you're of a certain age or like old films, uh, you think of these ones. This is uh, the 1950 Cecil B. DeMille film, uh, Samson and Delilah, starring that uh, well-known Hebrew Jew, um, Victor Mature from Kentucky, and Hedy Lamar, and all very technicolor it was as well. But more importantly, what's your view of Samson the judge? Was he good, bad, or unlikely, or some kind of mixture of all three? Was he a man of God, or something else? He certainly did unexpected and unlikely things, but what's his place in Judges? What's his place in the Old Testament as a whole? Now, the Israelites were living, obviously, in the Promised Land, uh, the land of milk and honey. But as a theme of this series, we've been finding out that they were uh, only partial in their obedience to God. They hadn't eradicated the various tribes that they'd been ordered to do so by God. And we're now 300 years on, and it's still a serious problem. So we've been thinking about the cycle of sin in the judges. We've got peace in the land. You've got to start somewhere in a cycle, I suppose. Uh, then the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God punishes them. Israel is enslaved or taken over by various tribes at various times. They cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. And Samson, as I said, is number 12. Israel is delivered. And then there's peace in the land. But the whole thing cycles round and round. We could think of it in terms of the four R's. I think we've mentioned that before on Sunday nights. Of rebellion, re retribution, repentance and rescue. So the social structures give way from time to time to leadership by charismatic individuals, but they're often erratic and inconsistent, and Samson is no exception to that rule. So these are honest warts and all stories about what happens when people do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and everybody does as they see fit, and that's mentioned about four times 
within the book of Judges. So Samson is a contemporary or slightly after Jephthah, whom we met last week uh, with Nigel, and probably Samuel as well, something around about the same time. We're talking here about 1150 to 1170-ish BC, or that should be the other way around, I suppose. So Jephthah was in the east, Samuel was in the middle part, and Samson was further out towards the west, further out towards uh, the coast. Now, he doesn't get to be a nationwide judge in the way that Deborah seems to have been, but he was raised up to deal with a specific threat, a specific (laughs) movement by the, the Philistines. And that's who his battles were against, of course, the Philistines. We know of them, Samson's battles and also David's battles against them. Uh, Goliath was a Philistine. And we tend to think of the the word Philistine these days. It's come into our language as people who don't like classical music, ballet or opera. I don't know if that includes you. Are you a Philistine in that regard? But they were a maritime people. They came either from Crete or Egypt. People are a bit uh, divided about that. They were merchant seamen mostly. Um, And they established themselves on the coastal plain five main cities or city-states as we see them today. Now, I was reading about this stuff last Monday morning, um, bank holiday Monday morning, and breakfast TV was on in the background, and I was reading about Ashdod, Ascalon, Gaza, etc. And where was the guy reporting from because of the incident with the humanitarian aid ship? He was reporting from um, Ashdod, and that's where the Irish ship has, has ended up over the last couple of days. So they spread inland, often through trade. That's the slide I should have put up there. Often through trade and intermarriage. And we'll see this as being a pretty important factor um, later on. And they'd been top dogs in the area for about 20 years when Samson was born. And the only other mention of the Philistines and judges is our old friend Shamgar. Remember Shamgar? Who killed 600 Philistines with a pointed stick, as David said, an ox goad. In chapter 3, he gets two verses. Samson gets um, four chapters. So they spread inland and they've taken over. But Samson was not going to lead the Israelites into a time of peace like some of the other judges. But his job was to stir them up against this uh, threat from the Philistines. So if you've got a Bible, um, maybe you would turn to... Judges chapter 13, page 256. As I say, I'm not going to read all the verses, but I want you to follow. And I'll just pick out a number of the verses and try and uh, tell the story briefly, stories briefly, and uh, pick out some of the the factors that I think are important in all of this. So chapter 13, and what do we have as a title for chapter 13? An angel announces the birth of. Sounds like something from the Christmas story, doesn't it? An angel announces the birth of Samson. And he's the only one that gets this kind of special treatment. But have a look at the first couple of verses of Judges chapter 13. And it's similar in many ways to the starting verses of many of the other judges' stories. But it's different in one important regard. The other ones have mention of Israel crying out to the Lord in their distress. Chapter 3, 4, 6 and 10, it's the same format. No mention of any repentance in this particular beginning of the story. Is this just a mistake, an omission by the writer? Well, perhaps not. Um, Israel had been crying out a number of times in the past, and it mostly had been a cry for help rather than repentance or confession, and those are two different things. And last week, in the story that Nigel told us about Jephthah, God decided to give up on the people of Israel. He'd had enough. And then they cried for help and he relented and heard their cry and stepped in again and raised up Jephthah. This time, there isn't even a cry for help. It's a great example of grace. 
this whole story. Grace greater than all of our sin, all of our stupidity, all of our ignorance. While we were still sinners, while the Israelites were still sinners, God steps in. So the Old Testament God isn't really different from the New Testament God. What would it be like if God's help were only given when we asked for it? What condition would we be in? So here, and you can skim down through chapter 13, we meet Manoah and his unnamed but wonderful wife. Doesn't have a name, but she's great. Wonderful character. And they're from the tribe of Dan. Very small, very insignificant, very unlikely. And they lived in Zorah, which was very close to some Philistine strongholds. But they turn out to be great choices for parents. They're godly, they're obedient, they're prayerful, they're full of faith. But there was personal sadness here, as you can see, whenever the angel simply says very bluntly in verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless. It's not exactly a very warm beginning, is it? Manoah's wife was barren, a great source of shame in that society, but it's a very common biblical motif, isn't it? We've got Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel in Genesis. We've got Hannah, Samuel's mother, around about the same time. We've got Elizabeth, who's John the Baptist's mother as well. So not a promising start to this great story, the story of the next judge. There's no human energy here, no real hope. But God, what does he do? According to Dale Ralph Davis, prefaces exceptional work with exceptional difficulties. That's a good phrase, isn't it? He prefaces exceptional work with exceptional difficulties. So he pays a visit to a nameless, childless woman in the weakest part of the whole of the area of, used by the Israelites at that time, and he's going to bring great things from nothing. So God visits her, addresses the nation's problems at the same time as her own personal difficulties. She's going to have a son. The nation would be saved. It's all very matter of fact, as we read it in verses 3 and 4. Now Manoah, he is a practical man, and he asks straight away for a second visit. He wants another visit from this unusual visitor that his wife has reported to him. And he straight away asks practical questions. Have a look at verse 8. Have a look at verse 10. Here are two questions that he asks. And in one sense, they're wonderful prayers, aren't they? Teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. What is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? He wanted details. He was a details man, Manoah. He was looking for a manual about how to raise a a judge. When all he really needed were the simple instructions that had already been given. And we often are a bit like that, aren't we? We we want instructions, more instructions about what God would want us to do in the future. And isn't it true, though, that God normally just leads us forward on a day-to-day basis? We don't know what God wants us to do next year or the year after. But we do know from his word how we are to lead our lives today. So maybe we should get on with it a bit more, putting that into practice and leave the future in his hands. shouldn't stop us from seeking his will about the future and pushing the doors, but maybe it should stop us from agonizing quite so much as we sometimes do. So the visitor replies to an offer of a meal by saying, no, don't give me a meal, but prepare a burnt offering. A little bit strange. And while this is happening, Manoah asks for the visitor's name. There's something very strange about this person. Names are important. They suggested character. I might find a bit more out about him if I ask for his name. And what does he get told in verse 18? Why do you ask my name? It's beyond understanding, it says. 
What does it mean? It's separate. Beyond understanding means separate, surpassing, ineffable is a word that we sometimes use in old hymns. It's a little bit like Psalm 139, where David the psalmist says about God hemming him in behind and before. He says, this is too wonderful. This is too lofty for me to attain. It's that kind of surpassingness that's being talked about here. And we're a bit the same today. There are limits to our ability as human beings to understand and to know God. There's a surpassingness about God that we'll never fathom. We might get to know him truly, but we can't get to know him exhaustively. And then verse 19, you can read it there. The Lord did an amazing thing while they watched. And this angel of the Lord goes up with the fire and the smoke um, into heaven. Had they been entertaining an angel unawares, they wondered afterwards? Or was this what we might call a theophany? Um, a visible manifestation of God himself rather than an angel. A bit like people think uh, Joshua's visitor was, the angel of the Lord that meets him in Joshua chapter 1 as he's standing in front of the Jordan River with Jericho not very far away. Now there aren't any other nativity stories in Judges. Why is that? Well, God works in lots of different ways. In some cases he raises up judges, in some cases very likely war leaders like Jephthah last week. He was a mercenary, a leader of men, gathering people around him. He was a great fighter. And then there was Gideon, the underdog Gideon. And here Samson is announced even before his birth. They're all different, but they're all part of God's greater plan. And he's told, or the family are told, that he is going to be a Nazarite. And I think three times it's mentioned, no razor for his his head, no alcohol and no touching of dead bodies. And all the details about being a Nazarite are explained for us in Numbers chapter 6. It's usually voluntary, it's usually temporary, but this was to be a life wholly dedicated to God. Rather like Samuel, rather like John the Baptist, they were two others. And I suppose we can think of that separateness as, as when you, you say no to something, that sometimes indicates that you're saying a definite yes to something else. And this was what Samson's life was going to be like. But have a look at the last verse in 24. God promised this barren woman would have a son. And 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. Again, all very matter of fact. And see what it says next. He grew, the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Now one of the things that the angel had said, or the theophany had said earlier on, is he's going to begin to relieve the people from the Philistines. Not the finished article, not the finished event, but this is going to be the beginning of something. It does say that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. It wasn't that he possessed the Spirit of the Lord. It's an irresistible possession of him by God's Spirit. So let's move on to chapter 14. And it's a chapter of secrets. There are lots of secrets in this chapter, at least four uh, that we know because we are being narrated to by the writer. But the players, the actors, they don't know what's going on in in many of the circumstances. We've been up on a mountaintop with Manoah and his wife and this great visitation. We've had this birth announced. But now we come down to earth with a bump. And he grew and the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him. He's a Nazarite. He's got godly, obedient parents. He's had a special announcement of his birth. It all sounds good, doesn't it? We've got a special high set of expectations. 
for Samson. And if we didn't know the stories that are coming up next, we'd think he was going to be what? A clear thinking, moderate, clean living, servant of God, a great leader who's able to gather the Israelites around him and rally the troops. And he turns out to be none of those things on many occasions. We get the Samson that we know and love, don't we, after this? Samson seems to be a carnal rather than a spiritual man. He's got a weakness for women. He's got a problem with uncontrollable anger. And yet God has chosen him to be a judge. So how is he going to use him? Well, Samson's failings help us focus on God's faithfulness. Just like Gideon's weakness and reluctance and underdogness help us to focus on God's strength. And God is at work often, as we'll see, despite Samson rather than because of him. So we go straight into adult life, no messing about, no childhood mentioned here at all, no episodes of him lifting up heavy rocks or something, nothing like that at all. What happens? In 14, he goes, uh, well, what does he do? His first recorded act is to flaunt God's law, flaunt Israelite tradition, and flaunt his parents' wishes. So it's not a good start. He goes to Timnah, about four miles away. And he tells his parents, I've seen a woman. Get her for me, basically, is what he said. And apparently, I read that uh, verse 2, when he says a woman, would be translated colloquially, colloquially today as she's a real cracker. Apparently, that's what he was meaning. So he really fancies this woman from Timna. Parents know that it's forbidden that he marries somebody from a foreign race, and they try to persuade him otherwise. They mention either Philistine or uncircumcised about three times. What does Samson say? In, I think it's verse 4. She's the right one for me. That's all he says. A bit like the Israelites as a whole. He just was doing what he wanted. What was right in his own eyes. But here comes verse 4. And it's the key verse in the whole story of Samson. His parents did not know. It's in brackets you can see. That this was from the Lord. What was from the Lord? His choice of this woman. This Philistine woman from Timnah. The Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. It was all from God. Now Samson seems more driven by his hormones at this stage. He's a typical judge's man. He's big on doing his own thing. But like a lot of people today. And none of this justifies Samson's actions. But it does mean that neither Samson's lust nor his disobedience nor his stubbornness are able to get in the way of God's plans. He uses Samson's disobedience to further those plans. It's the key to understanding the rest of Samson's life, this verse. Now maybe this should be a comfort to all of us who've messed up. And that means all of us. And it should be a reassurance that the messiest of situations can be rescued. And even sometimes used positively by God. Now his parents must have been devastated, mustn't they? Their only son, a special son, special announcement, all the rest of it. He's supposed to be a Nazarite and, and he's marrying a Philistine woman. What comfort it would have been to them to know this. But they didn't. So then we come to the lion incident. The first time we read about Samson's great strength. And it says in verse 6, the spirit came upon him in power. It came upon him as a rush all at once. Uh, he couldn't have been in any doubt that something special was happening and that it was God's power. And this happens on several other occasions. What's the purpose behind the lion event? What's the point in it being there? Well, apart from the fact that it sets up the whole riddle incident at the wedding that's coming next, um, it also must have made Samson very aware that the strength that he would be given was going to be there when he needed it, when he's fighting against the Philistines. It was a kind of commissioning. 
From this point on, all of the strength incidents are connected to his one-man war against the Philistines and his faithfulness to God. So, was Samson a muscle man? Was he a Charles Atlas, if that's not aging me as well? Was he an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of physique? Usually portrayed this way in various art forms down through the years. Did he know about his strength before this incident with the lion? Had other strength demonstrations happened before? We, we don't know. Now, the Old Testament is very good at emphasizing physical prowess and peculiarities and so on. We've got Goliath's height. We've got Saul, head and shoulders. We've got David's handsomeness and so on. It's all mentioned there for us. And yet no mention is made at all of Samson's physique. Was he a really strong-looking, iron-pumping muscle man? We just don't know. Delilah, as we'll find out next week, asks the question, what's the secret of your strength? So it wasn't just a physical... Um, view that that sort of gave the answer to that or maybe his feats were so above the norm and so above any understanding that not even a an arny kind of physique could have explained them we don't know the answer to that in, in one sense the whole debate is irrelevant anyway all the episodes are connected with god's spirit coming on him his strength wasn't natural now what's the what's the kind of application to that that we might take hopefully not stretching it too far but i would coin the phrase um I would call this a preparation preview. Not a very good phrase, never mind. But I'm talking here about events that prepare us for something, even if we don't know that it's happening at the time. Preparation preview. Smaller episodes of deliverance and provision can show us how adequate God is for more difficult situations in our lives in the future. Now, an example of that. A real-life example of what I call a preparation preview was Nathaniel and Donna Jennings, who are missionaries of ours in South Asia. And six, seven months ago, Nathaniel came down with appendicitis. And this is what they wrote in a subsequent prayer letter email. This is wonderful. In a rushed flurry, we hired a car and drove nine hours north to the nearest hospital for Nathaniel's appendectomy. We're so thankful to God's care for God's care over us, as this could have been much worse. Being so far from decent medical care is a worry here, but God's care this time reinforces our faith for future unknowns. Isn't that wonderful? They, they viewed it positively because they now knew that in the future if something happened to them or Micah, they knew what to do, and they thanked God for that. Now, not all of our difficulties can be looked on in this kind of silver lining way, but some can, and maybe that's the challenge for us. So there's a big wedding taking place in this chapter, a big wedding feast, probably a drinking party, and the bridegroom would usually bring lots of his own guests, but Samson was a Jew, they were underdogs, the Philistines provided 30 stooges instead and Samson must have been pretty much on his own as a Jew there an outcast, um, an underdog but he, he shows off by setting a riddle a tradition in those days and it was to do with the lion that he killed and the fact that he saw bees in the carcass on the way back a bit of a one-sided riddle, not easy to, to guess by any means um, only he knew the real answer of course but what was the wager? 30 linen garments and 30 Sunday best as well totally impossible for him to pay back and I think the guys knew that and they were out for him so events spiral out of control there's a cycle of violence and death that happens next as so often follows. The woman finally coaxes Samson to give up the answer. He realizes that all is up. 
So he storms off halfway through the wedding celebrations, heads off to Ascalon, one of the other cities that's been mentioned recently this week. 23 miles away this is, so making sure that he's well out of the sphere of influence of, of the town where the wedding was taking place. He kills 30 men and takes their clothes. Now, what do we think of that incident? Killing 30 unrelated, innocent, in inverted commas, Philistines. It's pretty unpalatable stuff, isn't it? It's fairly unacceptable. So is Samson just a bad loser? Well, the text doesn't really allow us to think that way. Verse 19 says, The Spirit suddenly gave him strength, basically, and he killed the men. God's Spirit allowed him to kill these men. It's pretty shocking stuff. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the actions of individuals, especially in judges, as we found out, nor the actions of God to protect and save his people. And this is part of the controversial aspect of Judges. Still, Samson heads home, verse 19. He's burning with anger, and that's the paradox of Samson. He's a man of God, used by God. God's spirit is in him, but the carnal man still has his own anger. And what's the kind of relationship between those two things in this deeply flawed character? Maybe there's lots of Samson in us, but it all has to be viewed through the lens of verse 4. It all has to be looked at through that way. So we move on to chapter 15 and the, the ongoing downward spiral of violence. So sometime later, um, at harvest time, he goes back to see his wife in inverted commas because they were never properly married and it's, it's harvest time. And ladies, he doesn't bring a bunch of flowers, but what does he bring? A young goat. Just what you would have wanted as a Philistine woman in those days. Love is in the air. But she's been given to his best man, who was a Philistine, one of the stooges, I imagine. And the father blurts out that she's not Samson's wife, she's given to somebody else. And what does Samson say? This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So now's his big chance, I suppose. Is he more interested in personal vengeance than God's glory? That's a hard one, isn't it? And this is the pattern for the rest of the Samson story. We seem to have a resolution and then the whole thing flares up again. But again, it's God in the background wanting to stir things up. Now, I'm a James Bond fan. I like the films and, and I've read a few of the books as well. But in nearly every story, he seems to get himself um, deliberately, accidentally captured. Doesn't he? To flush out the baddies. That's what he does. And it gives a good chance within every story for a bit of dialogue between Goldfinger or Blofeld and Bond. There's a good bit of crack goes on there. And the baddie explains in detail his plan for taking over the world for us stupid uh, watchers, you know. And they never think of putting a bullet in Bond to sort out the problem. And he, he escapes, etc., etc. And it's this idea of um, God using Samson to get in amongst them, stir things up, start things going, flush out the baddies. That's what's happening here I think. So we get the incident of the foxes. These poor foxes, 300 of them, tails tied together, maybe an oil-soaked rag in behind them, and he sets them off through the crops and the vineyards and the olive groves. At the worst possible time, harvest time, couldn't have been worse in terms of maximum destruction for, for, for an agricultural community. Now, how do you go about collecting 300 foxes? Yeah. I don't know that they were necessarily nice red russet foxes like we have in our country here. They may have been jackals, and they're pack animals, so maybe they, you know, they could have gathered a whole, lot, a whole lot up together at the same time. But it must have taken a lot of time, a lot of energy, plenty of time for Samson to brood and seethe over what had happened to his wife, plenty of time for it to simmer in his heart. Now, we're not going to be burning any fields or foxes, but we all know about burning annoyance 
and indignation and anger and righteous anger and plotting and fantasizing and stirring things up in our own hearts. And that's a sure way to ruin relationships and set a cycle going if it's allowed to be developed rather than being nipped in the bud. So the question is, are are you and I collecting foxes? Is that what we do sometimes? Uh, Do we let our minds go too far in, in this regard? And just as a very quick aside, some of you know about Firefox internet browser, the little free one that you can get instead of Internet Explorer. Uh, I don't know, I read somewhere on the web that this came from the story of the foxes and the people who wrote it were setting little foxes in amongst Microsoft's big um, dominion over the internet. So I don't know if that's true or not. Somebody techie can uh, help me out with that afterwards. But it's a nice logo, isn't it? So the things get out of control. The Philistines take revenge on Samson's wife and her father. They fight fire with fire, literally, and this leads to an all-out assault, and it says in verse 8, he attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Now, surely now is the time for at least some of the Israelites who've seen God at work in Samson's life to start the rebellion. Get in behind him, just as it happened with Gideon and with Jephthah and so on. So verse 11, have a look at it. This looks good. 3,000 men of Judah gather to take up the fight. Nope. They gather to persuade Samson to stop the fight. Totally the opposite. The Philistines cleverly haven't taken any revenge on the local towns. Been pretty restrained that way. Why? Because they know it's Samson. They know he's a lone gun. So they send at least a thousand men to demand that Samson is handed over. So what do these three thousand men of Judah say to Samson? They say this to him. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? Now, a couple of the commentaries I read said that this is the single lowest point in terms of the nation's fall away from God. They'd all joined the self-preservation society. They couldn't see beyond the status quo. They'd given in. Deliverance was a threat now to them, a threat to peace. Samson is endangering them rather than the Philistines. What have you done to us, they said. They don't want to be God's free people. So they're very demoralized. They're saying it's not a good time to strike out. The Philistines aren't that bad, you know. They've brought law and order. Taxes aren't too bad. Foreign trade's okay. Now, it's not my favorite film, but um, you know where this comes from? It's a little bit uh, like the scene in The Life of Brian, where John Cleese is the kind of latter-day trade union leader, saying, what have the Romans ever done for us? And he gets all the replies from all the others who gradually realize, well, they've done an awful lot. They've brought roads and peace and things. And I get the impression this is the same kind of thing. They had sold out completely. What more evidence did they need that God was doing things through Samson, all of these battles that he had won? Uh, But they're not willing to stand up and sort of put their money where their mouth is. And it's who are these people? These are the Judeans. This is the tribe of Judah. And the very first uh, chapter in Judges, God says... Who will be first to go in and fight? And who put up their hands? The men of Judah. And they go in and win great battles. And here, a few generations later, a total change. And they'd been taken over by Moabites and Canaanites and Midianites and so on. But now they were um, softened. Softened by subjugation. A kind of cultural and spiritual seduction. A pretty easy life. Some freedoms and permissions. Free movement, etc. Samson was going to marry a Philistine girl, for goodness sake freedom to travel, etc. Not slaves, plus there was the easy, tempting religion, real gods to look at and touch, lots of festivals with fertility overtones, all very appealing. It was the ultimate rebellion against God. 
Now, I've never tried this, and I hope never to, but apparently if you get a frog and put it into really hot water, it'll jump out. But if you put it into lukewarm water and gradually increase the heat, it'll just sit there and boil to death. That's what I've been told. Never, never going to try it, don't worry. But you can see where I'm going with that kind of allusion. Now, there's John Milton, and he wrote Paradise Lost, and maybe some of you, like me, studied that for A-level. I, thought it was, I liked that difficult language, but I thought it was good. But he also wrote Samson Agonistes, and I've never read the whole text of that. But at one point within that, Samson Agonistes means Samson the Agonist or Samson the Contestant. And it's a great long poem, an epic poem of Samson's life. And at one point he's got Samson saying, complaining about the men of Judah, saying this, What more often nations grown corrupt and by their vices brought to servitude than to love bondage more than liberty? Bondage with ease rather than strenuous liberty. And to despise or envy or suspect whom God hath of his special favor raised as their deliverer. He says, they hit me because they like their ease. I must read a bit more of Samson Agonistes. Sounds like good stuff. So it's a dark day, a low point. We're called to hate evil and take it away from ourselves and be vicious against it, but this is not what was happening. God couldn't allow the Philistine occupation just to continue unchecked. The whole covenant line would have been wiped out. The messianic line would have been absorbed into paganism. And Samson is God's weapon against that. Now, maybe we shouldn't be too hasty in condemning these men of Judah. We're a little bit like that sometimes, are we not? Samson, did he stand up and give a rousing speech and say, God has helped me so far, come in behind me and fight? There's no evidence of that. You won't find that in these chapters. And You'd like to think that if he had done that, the writer would have been able to record it. There would have been enough witnesses, but it's not there at all. So they tie him up with the new cords. And I think he shows great faith at this point. He knows that either they can kill him and get rid of the problem, or he's going to be handed over to the Philistines, and who knows what they're going to end up doing to him. But he escapes the ropes, and he picks up the jawbone of a donkey. Verse 15, it says it's a fresh jawbone. Why that detail? Well, it hasn't been lying there desiccating in the hot sun for a long time. It's fresh, it's heavier, got a bit of moisture there, less brittle, probably a few teeth still there, so it's, it's a pretty good weapon. But it's still a remarkable feast. How do you kill a thousand people in uh, hand-to-hand combat? How do you step over all the bodies? How long would that take? What about being surrounded by a whole load of guys with spears, bows and arrows? Were they not invented at this stage? I think they were. It's a miracle. God's miraculous power at work through Samson. And then we have in verse 16 the song that he writes with a kind of rhyming pun. Um, I'll move on from there. Uh, That really doesn't work very well in our language. With a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men. But it's a pun on the word pile and donkey, which were very similar. And somebody had a go with, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. That's kind of the, the joke that he was trying to make at that point. Maybe he had to be there. So he's a lone ranger. Deborah and Barak had 10,000. Gideon had 300. But Samson is a, a coolly efficient killing machine, a bit like the Terminator. That's what he is like. But we have a reminder of his own reliance upon God. The battle is over. The rest of all run away. And this is the first time we hear Samson asking God for anything or praying to him. And what does he ask for? Water. He needs water. It's not to be the last time we hear him pray, mind you. And he expresses a sense that victory is God's. He cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. So he attributes it to the right place. He admits being an instrument and gives God the glory and needs 
rescued. And what does God do? Not just some water, but a spring, an everlasting spring that is still there, apparently. And God emphasizes and registers his approval of all that Samson has done. This slaughter of a thousand men. God says that that's right. That's good. And Samson's dependence produces God's sustaining help. And it gets called, can you see that in the footnotes? The caller's spring. Isn't that a nice picture? I'll not take that any further. But look at the last verse. Verse 20. Samson led Israel For 20 years in the days of the Philistines. What happened in those 20 years? I want to know. Were there 20 years worth more of wonderful deeds and events and so on? It would be great to know. But we don't. We're being left out from that. So in conclusion. Samson. Good, bad or unlikely. What do you think? Is he a hero of the faith? Was he a champion of the covenant? Or was he just a cruel and violent thug? Was he just a serial womanizer? Is he a man of faith just gone tragically astray? Is he an example of faith in action? I think he's all of those things. Well, suppose four chapters of the Bible were devoted to your life with all the good and bad things. How would you pan out? He was a man of his time and his cunning, his selfishness, his breaking of vows, his violence, his wrong motives must all be seen against the big picture of God's wanting to stir things up against the Philistines. And his behaviour in these verses, maybe you've seen, it's neither condoned nor condemned or excused. It's just told in a very matter-of-fact way. He's a sinful human being, but one who at times displayed remarkable episodes of extreme faith and obedience and was greatly used by God in that particular time. Is he some kind of type or foreshadowing of Jesus? Well, I'll leave that for David next week. Um, There are lots of parallels with the nation of Israel itself. I'll leave that for David next week. What's the Bible's final verdict on Samson? Is he mentioned in Hebrews like some of the others have been? I'll leave that for David next week. But there are lots of parallels with King David, just finally. Lion fights, killing Philistines, problems with women. There's three, for example. So why do we love David so much and really don't regard Samson in the same way at all? Well, we have the Psalms. We know about David's inner self through the Psalms. We know about his struggles, his anguish, his faith, his joy, his fears in the Psalms. We haven't the faintest clue what's going on in Samson's head most of the time. And that's why we love King David really more. So for the Israelites, we see a steady decline, a distancing of themselves away from God. Not because of hardship, but because of ease and temptation. What do we see about God in this story? We see persistent, stubborn love and grace towards his people. We see that God is long-suffering and gracious. And the failure of all of these Old Testament judges to fully do the job leads the prophets to look for the great and ultimate deliverer from sin, Jesus. He's the one who's going to be able to accomplish all of God's purposes. And we look back, as we do now, to see that he has done so. Gordon.